0: Welcome to Indo-Pacific Affairs, a podcast devoted to tackling the wicked problems facing policymakers, academicians, military leaders, and others in the Indo-Pacific region. Affiliated with Air University's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs and the Air Command and Staff College's e-school, the podcast features interviews with the top names in academia, government, and think tanks from around the region. Disclaimer: the views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast are those of the participants and should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, Air Education and Training Command, a university, or other agencies, or departments of the U.S. government, or their international equivalents. This is the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. This is
1: Lieutenant Colonel Z. Miller and Lieutenant Shaquille James. We are delighted to have Dr. Bruce Elliman with us today. He is the William V. Pratt Professor of International History at the U.S. Naval War College. He has a bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley, master's degrees from the London School of Economics and Columbia, as well as a PhD from Columbia University. He has written over 31 books on maritime history with a regional focus on East Asia. In your most recent book, Taiwan Strait Standoff, 70 Years of PRC Taiwan Cross-Strait Tensions, you examined declassified CIA and National Security Council memos during the 1950s to understand U.S. decision making regarding Taiwan. Can you briefly explain the origins of the cross-strait conflict? How did we get here?
2: Uh, Yes, thank you for having me. Um, as you both know, the um, the uh, national security policy of the United States is to open up um, archives after 50 years. Usually 50 years is the maximum. Uh, so many documents from the 1950s and now the 1960s are becoming available for the first time. And based on these uh, documents, you can um, investigate what happened now between the nationalists who uh, were forced out of mainland China and retreated to Taiwan in 1949 and the People's Republic of China, which remained on what we call mainland China. Uh, during the 1950s, uh, the two governments um, fought over small islands called offshore islands off the coast of China. The two famous ones are Kimoy and Madzu. And in Uh, The modern transliteration using Mandarin, that's Jinmun Island and Madzu Island. And in 1954, 55, and then later in 1958, uh, there were conflicts over who should control these islands. The United States government became involved after 1950 when the Korean War started. We did not want China to use the Korean War as a cover to attack Taiwan. And if Taiwan had fallen, that would have interrupted the sea lanes and those sea lanes allowed troops and supplies to be brought to the Korean theater. So therefore the United States set up the Taiwan Patrol. And that was a group of ships, U.S. Navy ships that would patrol up and down the strait, making sure that neither side, neither the PRC or Taiwan, nor Taiwan would attack each other, and that was to make sure that the war in Korea did not expand to the south uh, and include Taiwan. Taiwan had a very important geostrategic position. Uh, there were a, a a long group of islands known as now people refer to them as the First Island Chain that began with the Aleutian Islands, came down through the Kurils. Uh, the island of Hokkaido, the main Japanese islands, Okinawa, Taiwan, the Philippines, and then of course down even further into Indonesia. And those islands were seen as the first barrier to the expansion of communism in Asia. So the um, with the United States' help, Taiwan remained uh, separate from the PRC uh, over time, it became more democratic, it became uh, capitalist, and uh, soon began to um, to embody a, a symbol, if you will, of a free China that uh, remained in opposition to communist China on mainland China.
1: Thank you for that explanation. And to follow up, during the 1950s, the Truman and Eisenhower administrations had very different policies towards Taiwan. Can you explain the shift in the U.S. policy between the two administrations?
2: Yes. um, One of the most important differences is under Truman, this uh, Taiwan uh, patrol force stopped aggression from both directions, meaning if the PRC had wanted to attack Taiwan, uh, we would have intervened. But also, if Taiwan wanted to attack the PRC, we would have intervened, stopping any chance of the war in Korea spreading southward. When Eisenhower became president and in early 1953, he adopted a policy which some called unleashing Chiang shek. And what that meant is the US Navy continued to stop any attack from the PRC but ignored what Taiwan was doing. And so Taiwan suddenly could put pressure on the PRC. And this turned out, the the documents that are now available that have been declassified show that this was an actual strategy on the part of the Eisenhower administration to put pressure on China further to the south, off Taiwan, in order to convince the PRC to sign a peace treaty or a um, a temporary ending to the Korean conflict. And this is what happened. Because of this increased pressure uh, from the South, by the summer of 1953, an armistice had been signed, uh, essentially ending the Korean conflict. Now, of course, it continues to this day with the North Korea and South Korea, but the active fighting ended during the summer of 1953. So the documents show this was all part of a policy uh, instituted by the Eisenhower administration as a way to force the PRC to come to terms in Korea. right, Dr.
3: Elliman, so you touched on it a little bit, uh, in talking about the role of Taiwan in the Korean War. Can you talk about what other significance Taiwan has in U.S. policy in the 1950s and uh, how has the Taiwan issue evolved for the United States over
2: the last 70 years? Um, yes, well, Taiwan had many different um, purposes, not only to keep the this first island chain secure to stop uh, the communists from invading, but it was also thought of as sort of a showcase, a window, if you will, for the rest of the Asian countries to see what a uh, what the free world could offer to Asia. And so, for example, what soon became called the Taiwan miracle happened in Taiwan. Uh, this was with the support of the U.S. government, the Taiwanese people, who were a very interesting mix of Japanese, people who have been colonized by Japan from 1895 to 1945, the um, Chinese who had moved to Taiwan during the 17th century, during the opposing the Ming, they opposed the Qing, the Manchus who were invading. And finally, the nationalists who came in 1949, So the amalgamation of these Chinese from the 17th century, Japanese from that 50-year period, uh, which was 1895 to 1945. And finally, the nationalists, uh, several million of whom arrived in uh, the late 1940s, created uh, what was soon called the Taiwan Miracle. And people think of the PRC as having these extraordinary growth rates, but during the 50s and the 60s, uh, the Taiwanese economic growth rate was usually up around 8 percent, sometimes 10 percent, sometimes even higher. And funny as it may seem, by the uh, 1980s, the, um, the, the gross uh, national product, the GNP for Taiwan, equaled half of all of the PRC, even though there were only 20 million People on Taiwan versus over a billion in the PRC. So it became a very wealthy country uh, with the support of the United States and by trading with the West. Um, So that's just uh, one example. And a um, congressman even referred to this once as the uh, reverse domino effect, that by showing the world what you could do by working with the United States and other Western nations, uh, it gave other countries um something to think about, you know urging them to join with the West and not join with communist countries like like China uh finally, very quickly uh democratization beginning in the nineteen fifties, the United States urged the nationalist government to start instituting democratic processes in Taiwan. They did so starting at very low levels to start with um, regional and uh, city elections. Over time, it became uh, parliamentary elections. And finally, in the 1990s, Taiwan had the first free election for the president of Taiwan, which was in many ways the first democratic election in Chinese history. The the first in however many years, 5,000 years of Chinese history, This was the first true democratic election for the leader of Taiwan. So both of these examples, all three really, the um, military importance, economic importance, and finally the, the political importance of Taiwan acted as a symbol for the rest of the Asian countries to consider. And returning
3: very briefly to the 1950s, obviously there were some incidents then with the PRC shelling some offshore islands specifically in 1954 to 1955 and so on. Can you talk about the calculations behind these and what sort of miscalculations might be in play?
2: Yes, that's a great question. The um, the PRC uh, thought, it turned out mistakenly, that they could break apart Taiwan and the United States. They They thought that if they attacked Taiwan, we would back off. You know, the United States would retreat. And instead, the opposite happened. Before the attack on the offshore islands in uh, the fall of 1954, the United States had been cautious and didn't really want to sign an actual security treaty with Taiwan. Uh, But once the PRC attacked, that changed. And by the late fall of 1954, uh, the United States and Taiwan signed a security treaty And as part of this, there was actually a secret treaty, which I found in the archives, and I believe I'm the first uh, person to ever locate this and discuss this secret agreement. Uh, What it said was that Taiwan promised not to attack the PRC without first talking with the United States and essentially getting U.S. support. So what this meant is that uh, we could suddenly, uh, control's too strong a word, we could suddenly influence Taiwan as to whether it was planning to attack uh, mainland China or not. And this actually was a very important uh, secret agreement because uh, it meant that we could deescalate tensions uh, when need be. And in 1958, during a second conflict, this became evident when the nationalists agreed to demilitarize the some of these offshore islands as a way of uh, letting the incident simmer down. And so that secret agreement from 54 became very important later in 1958. Uh, as part of that 1958 agreement, there was a second deal, and that was that in return for the nationalists pulling troops off these offshore islands, Uh, we would accelerate giving them high-tech weapons, ammunition, airplanes, etc. And so that was part of the agreement to end the 1958 incident.
1: Based on all these events that you just described, what were the strategic and tactical outcomes of the first and second Taiwan Strait Crises for the Chinese Communists? What about for the United States? Were there any clear winners or losers in these two conflicts?
2: Well, uh, number one, the PRC plan to separate the United States and Taiwan backfired. In fact, uh, our diplomatic and military relations became much stronger. That's number one. And so the 1954-1955 events turned out to be absolutely diametrically opposite of what uh, Beijing had been hoping for. Uh, Then in 1958, as a result of the second incident over the offshore islands, uh, the United States agreed that if need be, they would support Taiwan up to and including the use of nuclear weapons. And the reason that's important is there's a term that came out in the 50s and afterwards called nuclear umbrella. And essentially after 1958, Taiwan was tacitly under the um, nuclear umbrella of the United States, which meant its position was more secure. And if you uh, look at the history after 58, there was a a small incident in 1962, uh, but really for the rest of the 60s, the 70s, all of the 80s, the tensions on the Taiwan Strait were very low and, and remained very low. And you could argue that's in part because from 58 on, Taiwan was being given nuclear guarantees by the United States. Now, after 1991, the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, things did begin to change uh, at that point. But for about 30 years, the tensions in the Taiwan Strait remain very low as a result of these new policies.
1: Are there any similarities in Chinese decision-making and use of force during the Taiwan Strait crisis in the 1950s compared with other examples of Chinese use of force in other conflicts?
2: Uh, yes, I can mention two. Just like offshore islands became important in the 1950s during these two incidents, uh, the Chinese are even now attempting to put pressure on Japan over the Diaoyu Islands, uh, known in Japan as the Senkaku Islands. This is a very complicated issue. I'm, I'm not going to claim I'm the world's expert on this, uh, but what happened is immediately before the peace treaty was signed in 1895, which ceded Taiwan to Japan, the Jiaoyu islands were taken by Japan and proclaimed to be Japanese. So i.e. this was before the treaty was signed. Uh, the later the Chinese disputed that and said, well, really, those islands should have been part of the 1895 treaty, which means at the end of World War II, when Taiwan was returned to China, which at that point meant nationalist China, these small islands, the jiaoyu Islands, should have been returned with Taiwan. So that's the issue. And the Chinese are uh, conducting operations, naval operations, somewhat similar to what they were doing in the fifties. They're sending ships into the waters surrounding the Jiaoyu Islands, the Senkakus. They're putting pressure on Japan to to return those islands to China. And really it's not worked. So far it's backfired in the sense that the Japanese have responded in kind, sending their own ships, and they've militarized other islands uh, near the Senkakus in case there's ever a conflict. So that's number one. Uh, Number two are the South China Sea Islands. Uh, That's a very complicated situation. I can only touch on it here briefly that um, there are two groups of islands, main groups. One is the Paracels. In 1974, the Chinese, the PRC retook the Paracels, taking them from South Vietnam. Now, at this point, South Vietnam was a U.S. ally. The United States let the Chinese take the islands. We did not intervene because the writing was pretty much on the wall at this point that North Vietnam would eventually invade and take South Vietnam. Therefore, by having China take these very strategic islands, the Paracels, they would not fall into Hanoi's hands, North Vietnam's hands. The fear was if North Vietnam got them, then the Soviet Navy would be given basing rights in the Paracels, which have a very strategic location. So instead China uh, took them in 1974 and we, the United States, essentially agreed with that at the time. Uh, But of course now, um, 50 years later, um, the fact that the Chinese control the Paracels is highly disputed. And the Vietnamese government claims that the Paracels should be Vietnamese. The second group in the South China Sea are the Spratly Islands. Uh, Many countries claim the Spratlys. Taiwan has the only large base on, they call it Taiping Island. Other powers have smaller uh, bases in the Spratly area, and all of the various countries there are disputing ownership over the Spratlys. Uh, The United States does not have an opinion on who owns these islands. Our view is that all of the different uh, countries should be able to claim them, and they should negotiate an acceptable solution. Um, in nineteen, in 2016, the um, International Court actually sided with the Philippines in opposing the Chinese claim that it controlled all of the South China Sea. And so the international courts have actually not backed the Chinese claim to this entire area. Um, so as you can see uh, with the 1950s, the um, the Senkakus and also the Paracel and Spratleys, the uh, disputes over these small islands, many of them uh, so small, they don't have any water, fresh water, they don't have any resources of any type. Uh, but these uh, disputes over these islands uh, continue to cause real tensions uh, in Asia. After the pivot to Asia, which happened in the previous Obama administration, uh, the United States has become what I call the maritime arbiter for these disputes. Uh, again, we don't really have an opinion on who owns these islands Uh, What we have an opinion on is they should be resolved peacefully. Uh, We do not want to see a major war break out in East Asia over the control of these these small islands. Why? Well, among other reasons, it's because of the trade. The amount of trade that goes through the Malacca Strait and then through the South China Sea is enormous. And without that trade, all of the East Asian uh, countries would be imperiled. And so our view is that these differences should be uh, negotiated, that they should find a compromise solution of some type, and that therefore uh, this should be done without uh, resorting to military uses of any kind. And, and so that is pretty much the um, the view of the United States at this point.
3: Dr. Elman, you're very well versed in maritime history clearly, and have written many books on Chinese naval modernization. China has historically been a continental power due to the numerous threats it has faced from the North and West. But can China also manage to become a sea power as well?
2: Excellent question. Um, that is a question, you might even call that the um, the big question in, in current Chinese history. And here's why. Approximately uh, 1890, Alfred Thayer Mahan, who was a professor at my institution, the U.S. Naval War College, wrote a book about the importance of sea power and discussed how uh, sea powers have advantages that continental powers simply don't have. The United States, uh, reading and, and following his advice, created a world-class navy and became based again on the logic of uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan's argument, became a sea power. And we traded globally. We eventually, after World War II, had many uh, naval bases around the world. And you could argue that U.S. power is based directly on uh, sea power. So China, having studied the history of first Great Britain, which began this uh, ball rolling, and the United States was in the process of building what became, what is now the largest Navy on the planet. Now, uh, I should clarify, it's the largest in terms of numbers of ships. Uh, The U.S. Navy is still larger in terms of tonnage. Tonnage is the weight of the ships. And we have, for example, uh, I believe it's now 11 aircraft carriers, all nuclear powered and currently china does not have any nuclear carriers and only one older um russian made the Liaoning carrier and it's now uh working on its first indigenous carrier but also not nuclear carrier and so that's a big difference it, it would be like having i don't know a mercedes you know having a race with a lawnmower you know the the nuclear carriers can go so fast when they're allowed to to go to speed that you could uh literally water ski behind them. I mean they can really uh move. And because they're nuclear, they don't need to be refueled, you know, like maybe once every ten years. So so they very, they really do have a capability that China cannot match at this point. But to answer your question, if China does succeed in transitioning from a what's called a continental power to a sea power, then it hopes to follow in the footsteps of both Great Britain and the United States in asserting itself more and more on the global stage. And it's now started uh, that by having a base in Djibouti, which is in uh, the Red Sea. And there now are discussions of opening the first Chinese naval base in the Atlantic in Western Africa as well. And if they do so, that would be their second overseas base. Now, is this bad? Well, no, it's not bad as long as the Chinese goal is to protect their trade, their overseas trade, to carry out, for example, anti-piracy patrols, which they've been doing successfully off of uh, Somalia. There, There's no problem with China having a, a world-class Navy. In fact, that could be a great benefit for the world. If China plays by, you know, the rules, by international rules, that's where the problem with the South China Sea comes up, because at least so far, China, which has signed UNCLOS and ratified it, has not followed the ruling of the international court. And so some people say that really they, they are obliged to follow that decision since they have signed and ratified UNCLOS. And and that's one of the big discussions. Um, The second part of this is China is still very much a continental power. It has borders with 14 different countries. That's more than any other country on the planet. And of course, if you've been watching the news, many of these countries are now uh, having problems. We all know about Afghanistan as one. Kazakhstan has now been having uh, domestic turmoil. And these two countries border China. And the question is whether China will uh, feel threatened by this uh, lack of stability in these neighboring countries and might even decide to send troops, if not into the countries, at least along its border with Kazakhstan, et cetera. And so the question is, can China successfully turn from being a continental to a sea power? One example earlier of this was Germany. Germany tried in World War I and World War II to make this transition from essentially a land power to a sea power, and it failed. Uh, both attempts were failures. And today, Germany is still a very important country, very you know wealthy country. No one could possibly say it's not an important country, but it's not really considered to be a sea power. It, it is essentially still a landlocked power. And so China's hope would be to go beyond where Germany managed to achieve and, and to copy more like what Great Britain and the United States have achieved.
3: Now, considering all of that, and based upon your study and analysis of the, of the historical tensions between China and Taiwan, what do you think a cross-strait conflict would look like today? Or how could or would the USA's allies become involved?
2: Well, that's a, a great question, boy. If that uh, if we could answer that question, you could shut down you know two thirds of the government right now because that's what everybody's talking about. Well, number one, the sea lanes um, going by Taiwan are absolutely critical for Japan's economy, for South Korea's economy, and for China. China, much of China's ports are in the northern area, north of Taiwan. And if there were an active war over Taiwan, uh, you could well imagine all of that traffic, all of that commercial traffic would be disrupted. And so in that sense, whenever uh, China threatens Taiwan, it's a little bit like that old joke of a person holding a gun to their own head and saying, stop, I have a hostage, right? That's from Blazing Saddles, among other movies. Uh, that for China to attack Taiwan would actually be one of the worst things it could do for its own economy. And so uh, they would need to think uh, more than twice before they actually use military force against Taiwan. Uh, but the United States, of course, is still worried about that. Um, in recent years, the development of what's called the Quad, this is a, uh arrangement between the United States, Japan, India and Australia has been created. And just recently, Australia and Japan uh, signed an agreement to increase their cooperation. And those uh, four countries are now working together closely to make sure that a uh, tensions in Taiwan um, don't break out. And if they did break out, that they would cooperate in a strategy to try to... Um, to, let's say, lessen tensions in the Taiwan Straits. Uh, What might that include? Well, um, as we've seen in recent years, that could could include sanctions. Uh, That could include uh, even a blockade, a naval blockade, which would not happen probably anywhere near China, but might happen to the west of the Malacca Straits or in the Indian Ocean. It could include uh, commerce raiding. Commerce raiding is when the ships of a particular country, in this case, it would be the PRC ships uh, were stopped at in a port and uh, told they could not continue on their journey. And since China imports the majority of its oil, much of it from the Middle East, a uh, blockade and commerce rating operation that stopped uh, these uh, oil tankers would clearly uh, undermine uh, China's position, and therefore, uh, the Quad is uh, has been uh, developed to um, discuss all kinds of options, not just those, to try to make sure that war in uh, Asia does not break out. That, especially now that we're in this COVID crisis, I think we'd all agree that an active war would be um, would not be uh, good for anybody, uh, in particular for China, by the way. So. So the hope is that they see reason and don't uh, try to start any kind of an active conflict.
1: Related to this discussion on the importance of economics and trade surrounding the Taiwan Strait, what message was the PRC trying to send when it conducted short-range ballistic missile tests and military exercises in the Taiwan Strait in 1995? How should we interpret Chinese decision-making in what is known as a third Taiwan Strait crisis?
2: Excellent question. Um, the first issue is the um, this was after the end of the Cold War and the United States military left the Philippines and pulled out of uh, Southeast Asia and pulled back to Guam. And so that set the stage for a Chinese attempt to put pressure on Taiwan and Uh, Some people have referred to this as a missile blockade. That's shooting missiles into uh, various zones, uh, north and south of Taiwan, uh, were intended to interfere with Taiwan's trade. It also interfered with various flights. The flight paths that uh, would have normally gone through those areas had to be diverted or canceled. And so it put pressure on Taiwan for various reasons. Number one, in July of 1995 was the 50th anniversary of the Potsdam Agreement. What Potsdam agreed at the end of World War II is that all the territory taken by Japan would be given back. And of course, the PRC's view is that Taiwan is part of China and this agreement, the Potsdam Agreement has never been carried out. Now, we don't agree with that because of course, Taiwan was given back to the government in charge at that time, which was the nationalist government, and of course, then they left the P- the mainland for Taiwan in one thousand, nine hundred and forty-nine. So our view is that Potsdam Agreement was carried out, but the Chinese, uh, the PRC, doesn't really see it that way. Uh, the second reason for the missile tests is the very first free elections in Taiwan for president of Taiwan, and the PRC was concerned that the Taiwanese might declare their full independence from China. Now, that did not happen. It's not clear it would have happened, but these missile tests were intended to put pressure on Taiwan not to declare independence. What happened is essentially the Taiwan Patrol Force, which I mentioned earlier, which existed from 1950 through 1979. Uh, came back into force, and in a way, it's been going on ever since. That we sent two aircraft carriers, uh, one the Independence, the other uh, Nimitz, into the Taiwan waters in order to intervene and make sure the PRC could not invade Taiwan at that point. And with the appearance um, of these two aircraft carrier battle groups, the the missile tests ended, and pressure on Taiwan also ended. Now, that did cause concern in the PRC. Some have argued that as a result of that 1995-96 incident, the PRC began to develop the world-class navy that it now has, that they did not ever want to see that kind of intervention uh, succeed again. And so uh, what we're facing today is a much more robust Chinese Navy, a larger number of missiles, and uh, more of what experts called sea denial capabilities, capabilities that might allow the PRC to stop the U.S. Navy from coming in and intervening as we did in 1995-96. So that is one of the reasons why tensions uh, now in the Taiwan Strait could escalate much more quickly and to a higher level. because of all of these changes that the PRC has made.
1: Since you touched on Hong Kong earlier, I want to ask, how is the Chinese government's recent crackdowns on Hong Kong, such as restricting democracy, limiting free and fair elections, as seen by the passing of the national security law in 2020, how does the CCP's actions in Hong Kong affect or will influence Taiwan's willingness to return to the mainland?
2: Okay, well, let me first mention that Taiwan is a amazingly complex nation, They're only twenty twenty two million people, but there were uh, Aboriginal peoples, uh what are now called the hill uh, hill people, who came to Taiwan several thousand years ago, and they were the first inhabitants of Taiwan, quite possibly of Polynesian background. Then over the centuries, uh, various Chinese, Han Chinese from China, moved to Taiwan. And as I mentioned, in the 17th century, after 1644, when the Manchus invaded and created the Qing dynasty, many Ming loyalists fled to Taiwan. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese moved to Taiwan at that point. Then in 1895, after it was, Taiwan was ceded to Japan, Japanese moved to Taiwan and many of the uh, people in Taiwan learned Japanese. The schools, the public schools taught in Japanese at that point. So the people in Taiwan in that 50-year period might speak Taiwanese dialect at home, but they would use Japanese in uh, all official business. After 1945, when Taiwan was returned to the mainland, to China, and China at this point was nationalist China, what people estimate to be about 2 million nationalists, uh, these were from the mainland China, moved to Taiwan. You know, They were fleeing the Civil War. They were trying to escape you know, communism. So if you look at it as layered, you first have the original inhabitants, the what are the hill people? you then add a second group of chinese from the 17th century on onwards then you add japanese from that 50 year period 1895 to 1945 finally you have these nationalists who came over beginning in 1948 49 about 2 million which at that point was a huge percentage maybe even a third of all of the Taiwanese population. So in that uh, 70, 80 years almost now, since the end of World War II, that group has gone through um, a melting pot kind of uh, experience where intermarriage and a similar you know, public educational system has melded that group into one people some of them, I don't want to give any kind of statistics. I don't have any recent statistics. Some of them say that Taiwan is a completely different country and place than China. And they say that it should not even be considered part of China. It should be allowed to be a separate country. However, the uh, official policy since the end of World War II has been that there's only one China and the PRC is part part of that one China, and Taiwan is also part of that one China, and they disagree in who should be in charge, right? So the PRC says they're the boss, Taiwan says, nope, we're the boss, and so they usually disagree, but then again, on the Senkakus, they agree, on most of the islands in the South China Sea, they agree, they've had a tremendous amount of trade uh, in the past 20 years. In fact, you could argue that much of the economic development in the PRC uh, since let's say 1991, the end of the Cold War, was fueled by Taiwan. And it wasn't just Taiwan money, uh, many businessmen from Taiwan moved to the PRC and set up businesses. And you might argue, you know, train the PRC in how to do it, how to be a capitalist, how to be uh, more like Western oriented companies. And so the growth rates in the PRC, I think, are almost directly due to the influence of Taiwan. Um, however, and this is important, if Taiwan were to declare its independence, and I'm not saying it will, but if it were to do that, the PRC has said that would be a a trigger that could start a war and that a war could break out if the Taiwanese ever you know, officially try to declare their independence. So that's the situation we're in now. We're in a very ambiguous situation where the Taiwanese say that they're not part of PRC, but they're part of China, and yet they have their own government, they have their own foreign policy, they have you know trade with the world. Uh, they're one of the richest countries in the world, and as you may have read recently, they dominate to some degree the the manufacturing of uh, chips, of integrated circuits that we all rely on, it turns out, for almost everything that's made uh, nowadays. So the Taiwanese hold a very important position in in the global economy. And I'm afraid that um, the only guaranteed solution to this problem is to do what I call uh, kicking the can. Uh, that's from movies, Charlie Chaplin movies, where hobo or or the main character is just kicking a can down the road, meaning you'd never really face up to the problem, you don't try to solve it, you just push it further down into the future. And you hope that future generations will figure out a solution to the problem.
3: Uh, On that note, Xi Jinping, like previous Chinese leaders, has called Taiwan's unification with the mainland inevitable. Does that statement mean that a cross-strait conflict is inevitable?
2: Well, no, um, don't forget the Chinese worldview um, is a a very long term one that the Chinese will often say that their civilization uh, has been in existence for, you know, 5,000 years, what have you. So um, saying that um, there'll be unification, you know, and that it's inevitable doesn't mean uh, war as long as the timeline is long enough. I mean, we could be talking 100 years. We could be talking 300 years. I mean, who knows how long this could take. As long as the PRC does not present a firm deadline, you know, a line in the sand as to when unification is going to take place, then really, I'm not sure it's it's something people in Taiwan, many people in Taiwan wouldn't want as well. I think many Taiwanese would also eventually want to unify with uh, the rest of China. And and so the question is whether this will be done peacefully or through war. And as long as it's peaceful, as long as people in both PRC and Taiwan agree to it, then my guess is the United States would not intervene. The Japanese would not intervene. There'd be no opposition to uh, unified China as long as it was done Peacefully, And don't forget that when East and West Germany reunified, there were tensions. For example, for a while, the unified Germany wanted to redraw its borders, for example, with its neighbor Poland. Well, it took rather a unified front from all the other major Western leaders to uh, convince Germany to accept its borders as they had them after the unification. That To try to redraw the borders with Poland, for example, would have caused so much friction that it might have led to war. And so uh, Germany backed down, agreed to accept the borders that it currently has. Well, if the PRC and Taiwan ever unified, you'd suddenly have all kind of new problems. You know, traditionally, for example, the Taiwanese have claimed that Mongolia uh, what they call Outer Mongolia, should be part of China. That would be one example. The Taiwanese might have larger claims in Central Asia. You know, areas like near Kazakhstan, which is in turmoil now. That would be another example. Uh, as I mentioned, the uh, Taiwanese control the largest island in the South China Sea in the Spratleys, what they call Taiping Island. Uh, so therefore, their claims in the South China Sea are actually greater than those of the PRC, at least their holdings in the South China Sea are arguably greater. So if the Taiwanese and the PRC ever unified peacefully, that would be plus, except that suddenly all of these borders that today we think of as being secure might suddenly be in dispute again. And the various countries surrounding China, this greater China might then have to worry about additional uh, border conflicts or border tensions that they would have to negotiate. So it's very complicated. Um, We can all hope that in Korea and Taiwan, China, that all of these are handled responsibly and peacefully, but the reason the US military exists and the reason we have bases in Asia is in case things don't work out that way. And so we always have to be um, vigilant, and make sure that there's no uh, outbreak of conflict. And I would argue that's what the United States' main role in Asia is at this point. Let me just make one more comment about Hong Kong. Okay, Hong Kong is important to the PRC, to China, for several reasons. Uh, Number one is it's a primary uh, gateway, a naval gateway for China if China hopes to become a major sea power. So for that reason, the PRC wants to make sure that its control in Hong Kong is secure. Unfortunately for the Hong Kong people, that means that their their rights, their democratic rights have been um, recently challenged by the PRC, and we've all seen that. So we have a situation where because China has this ambition, we, we think, to become a sea power, making sure Hong Kong is part of that movement, the movement towards becoming a sea power is more important for the PRC. And and so I, I don't want to uh, sensationalize this, but I think as a uh, maritime historian, you could say that it's almost obvious that Hong Kong was going to be secured by the PRC, and and that its rights and its own democratic rights were going to be infringed on, because the PRC needs uh, Hong Kong needs the base, you know, the port. It needs the the trade. It needs the industry of Hong Kong if it hopes to become a major sea power. And so that's part of what's going on in Hong Kong right now. Now, um, interestingly, and I think we've all watched the news recently, since August, when the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, uh, Central Asia has experienced some, some problems, not only in Afghanistan, but also nearby Pakistan, most recently in Kazakhstan. So if the Central Asian countries fall into turmoil, if they were to have, for example, Uh, internal conflicts or even civil war, China would then be pushed into responding in uh, this landward direction. And back to this idea of China being a continental power or a sea power, it might then be almost forced away from its sea power ambitions and uh, would need to look more and more for the security along its borders its land borders now we don't know that's going to happen i would say that's uh, being decided right now but it is true that a brand new chinese border law was adopted in the fall and it became it went into effect just now in january of 2022 and we'll have to look and see what that law includes for example would it include Uh, more border stations, tighter rules as to border crossings, uh, more troops uh, along the lengthy borders with uh, Central Asian neighbors, for example. So we're all watching and going to have to figure out what this new law will actually do in the PRC. And, And so in a nutshell, I would argue that China right now is facing this conundrum. And here it is. You can be a sea power You could be a land power, but can you be both? Can you afford literally to have a big army and a big navy? And don't forget when the British did it, their navy was huge, but their army was very tiny. Uh, When the United States did it, yeah, we have a large army, but up through World War II, we really didn't. It was very tiny, and yet we already had built a large navy. It really has only been since World War II that the United States has had both a large army and a large navy, and of course, a large air force as well. Uh, can China follow that model? Can it afford to have both a large army, a large navy, a large air force? We're going to find that out. That's going to be the, um, the issue that's coming to the fore. Uh, but don't forget, the United States really only has two neighbors, Canada and Mexico, and sure we have little tiffs you know disagreements but really they're very good neighbors we we've not had a war with canada and certainly um with mexico for quite a while can china say the same well not really they're currently engaged in various um almost near conflict with india they've in the past had a, a war with vietnam and that border can get very tense they, a conflict in Korea, of course, is still uh, possible to this day. They've had tensions with Russia, including the 1969 conflict. So the question is, um, does China have the kind of security that the United States has? And I would argue no, that it's 14 neighbors are nowhere near as friendly as what the United States has. So that's a very big difference. And we're gonna find out whether China can overcome that and still carry out its sea power ambitions.
3: You know, that's a very, very interesting point, because if you look at the trends of the Chinese military, especially uh, according to the DOD report that was just released, I believe in November, it says that the Chinese military right now, the Air Force and the Navy increasing in size while the army is downsizing. So if what you mentioned comes to fruition where China has to repivot to focus on being its land power, then that 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 really corrupts the current trend of the Chinese military. So find it very interesting. Like you say, it'll be very interesting to see where that goes.
2: Well, that's what we teach. You know, I teach this at the Naval War College, and there's never any one right answer, right? People always can say, Well, I think it's gonna be this or I think it's gonna be that. But these trends you know, historical trends are fairly constant. And so, for example, Germany, you could argue twice, World War One and World War II, attempted to break out of its isolation and dominate the world, right? And built a Navy, you know, submarines, et cetera. And it failed twice. Well, so can China succeed where a country like Germany, you know, clearly failed? Nobody knows, you know, the Chinese have done an amazing job. Uh, growth rates have been huge. They've made real progress in all kinds of spheres. Uh, But I'm afraid the argument goes that um, can you be a truly global power without adopting democracy? And that's the big issue, that can China really um, go out and dominate the world, both economically and possibly military, and still retain its one-party uh, you know, communist system, and nobody knows. That's the big, the big question. And the hope, I think, was after the end of the Cold War that China would become democratic and that it would adopt greater and greater, you know, democratic reforms. Uh, but that's not really happened. And as you know, Xi Jinping is now essentially uh, president for life. Uh, in China. And that does parallel to a large degree exactly what a dictator or autocrat would have. So it appears that democracy in the PRC is not not very healthy at this point.
1: Dr. Elman, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Your scholarship on the topics of Taiwan and maritime issues in East Asia are unmatched. We appreciate your time and thank you for your insights today.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Indo-Pacific Affairs podcast. We hope you enjoyed the interview. You can engage with our interviewees, authors, and others via our Twitter feed at journal underscore Indo. You can also interact with us on the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs Facebook and LinkedIn sites.